us by mouth. May the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. There's an old story that comes from the late 1800s about a man who thought he had become rich. He went to the uh, office of the scientist chemist to show him this bag of treasure. And he stormed into the office of this chemist with this bag of treasure and he said breathlessly, Professor, what do you think of this? What do you call this? And he said, I call it iron pyrite. Fool's gold. And the guy said, oh, shh. Uh, a widow woman in our town has a whole, whole hill of this stuff. And I just upped and married her. <laughs> Did they have free knuckles back then? <laughs> All that glitters is not gold. And uh, it raises the question, of course, what is true treasure? What is really worth investing in and giving our lives to? What matters, ultimately, in the end? Our reading from the Old Testament and our Gospel reading both center on that question. What really matters in the end? Let's look at the selection from Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes records the teachings of this person called the preacher. It wasn't written by the preacher. It records the teachings of the preacher. There was a, a person who compiled and edited these sayings of the preacher. We don't know who the preacher was. Tradition says that it was King Solomon. Uh, Solomon, of course, had this reputation for great wisdom, and Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom, along with Proverbs and Job. It says that this preacher in verse 12 of our reading was a king over Israel. So it might have been Solomon. It might have been another king. We don't know. But somebody compiled these sayings and these teachings of the preacher. And this preacher had one basic point, which they say you ought to have for a good sermon. I don't always do that. But the idea is to have one basic point. If you had heard any of his sermons, I think you would have heard this one basic point. And that this was his motto. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanities of vanities. All is vanity. What does he mean by that? And that's a key to understanding this book. He's looking at life, human life, what he calls life under the sun. And he's saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does he mean by that word? We have to understand what that word means to understand Ecclesiastes because it just runs throughout the book. This is the drumbeat that he just steadily beats. Um, the word is translated from a Hebrew word, um, the word that's translated vanity is from the Hebrew word hevel, H-E-V-E-L, hevel. And the basic meaning behind hevel is smoke or vapor. And the image is something like, you know, a puff of air on a cold winter day. You see it, it looks substantial, but then it dissipates. And one of the things that the teacher is saying is like, there's so many things in this life, life under the sun, that is... Heaven. It's temporary. It's transitory. 
And the problem is, is that people want to cling to that for their ultimate security, but it's not solid. So that's part of the meaning of this word that's translated here, vanity. There's another dimension to uh, that word, another shade of meaning. And that is that a lot of life just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. There isn't always fairness. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. What is God up to? Um, part of this meaning of this word is the idea that God's ways are above our ways. That he's mysterious and inscrutable. And so... Um, that is a theme that runs throughout the book. Uh, this is not a book you want to cozy up to if you're in a bad mood. <laughs> now, if you're depressed, don't go to Ecclesiastes. Go to Philippians, maybe, where it's all joy and difficult circumstances. There's been times when I've been reading through the Bible, and I come to Ecclesiastes and say, I just don't think I can do Ecclesiastes today. There's been seasons like that. But... God saw fit to include the teaching of this preacher because even though it's difficult to face sometimes this reality that a lot of life just doesn't add up and God's ways are above our ways, it is reality and we need to take it seriously. It's part of the wisdom of God. You have the wisdom from Proverbs, you have the wisdom from Job, you have the wisdom in Ecclesiastes and God saw fit to include all those books in the Old Testament again. So a rich life of wisdom can be um, gained or, or you can engender a, a, a perspective of wisdom by taking all of those books in, even though it can be difficult sometimes to understand. Well, um, he addresses in this section of our reading from chapter 2 the vanity, the havel of work, of work, of labor, of toil. He's not against work. In fact, if you read on in this chapter, the next verse, chapter or verse 24, he says, there's nothing better for a person to do than to eat and drink and enjoy his work. So he's not against work. But he's saying, don't make work the ultimate meaning and purpose of your life. Don't look to work to, to give you ultimate satisfaction. And that's a problem that we have, I think, today in our fast-paced, career-orientated society. That there are many people who do exactly that. They get on the career ladder and they begin chasing, uh, you know, the rabbit, so to speak, of this race called achievement. And uh, they begin to make some sacrifices because it, be it becomes an idol. And you sacrifice the idols. And sometimes the sacrifice is family. And sometimes it's health. Oftentimes it's a relationship with God. You're too busy chasing this, this idol called career advancement. There's nothing wrong with advancing in one's career. Not at all. But the problem is, he's saying, when you make it your ultimate meaning. And he says, if you think about it, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Because there's some vanity. There's some havel attached to even our labor. And the example he gives is, he says, you know, you can build this great career. Uh, you can pull the all-nighters, you can 
climb the corporate ladder, you can finally get to the corner office, and then when you retire and it's all over, you might leave your work to somebody who's a fool, he says, who could screw everything up that you worked for. And that's Havel. That just doesn't make sense. But that's a fact of life. Haven't we seen that before? When I was reading that and thinking about it, I thought about Enron. Remember Enron 2001, the worst corporate bankruptcy uh, at that time? And I did a little research on Enron and looked at some of the companies that Enron took over. Good, solid companies that men and women gave their life to build up, like Houston Petroleum. I mean, they had petroleum and pipelines and railroads. And then Enron comes along and begins scooping up these kind of companies. And they offered derivatives on weather. You could go online to Enron and hedge against the weather, bet on the weather. It was, it became a house of cards. And this is the kind of stuff that this teacher, this preacher had seen. Somebody can build something up with their work and it be destroyed by fools. And then the preacher asked the, the workaholic, what are you getting from all your toil? Verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. He's stressed. His blood pressure is going through the roof because of his work. Even in the night, his heart doesn't rest. It's keeping him up at night. He's tossing and turning. This is also a vanity because you're working, you're toiling, and you can't even produce, you can't even enjoy the fruit of your labor because you're so so <coughs> your work. Now again, he's not against work per se. He's against making it into an idol, trying to find ultimate meaning and security there. And so, what is the uh, what is the preacher's conclusion? We're talking about what really matters. What does the preacher of Ecclesiastes say? Is the, is the meaning of all this. And you can give different answers and look at different places in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's kind of a complicated thing because different scholars say different things. But I've come down um, to uh, chapter 3, verse 14 as a key to the book of Ecclesiastes, at least the, the preacher's philosophy. And in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says this, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Whatever God does endures forever. Not what we do. Under the sun. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken away. God has done it. Listen to this. God has arranged things like this so that people fear before him. See, God has designed the world, he's saying, where we see that there is a lot of this havel. And, and we see that things don't always make sense and things don't work out the way that we think it should work out. And this produces humility before God or ought to produce humility before God and reverence for Him. So the, the point of Ecclesiastes, I think, is, is this idea of fearing God, reverencing Him, being humble before Him, Enjoy this life. Yes, enjoy your work. Enjoy the pleasures of this life. But keep things in perspective. The stuff, the career, the success, the pleasure, the comforts of life under the sun is limited and temporary. 
And God has designed it this way, the preacher says, so that we will fear him. So that we will come to the conclusion, he is God. And I'm not. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He is the creator of all. I'm not. So, to live a life of humility before God in recognition of these things is one of the points of Ecclesiastes. Now, in our Gospel reading, Jesus also gives us a take on what is the point of life. What should we be investing in? And his thesis is be rich towards God. Invest in the things of God. Be rich towards God. That's what matters in the end. Somebody in this crowd looks to Jesus to intervene in a family dispute. Maybe he sees Jesus as this great teacher, this great rabbi, he's got this great following, and he wants Jesus to intervene because there's a division in the family over the inheritance. What a happy circumstance. <laughs> Jesus. Tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. I want your stamp of approval on this dispute. And then Jesus responds, but he doesn't give him the response he wants at all. He says, you need to guard against coveting and greed. Take care and be on your guard against covetous. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. And then he tells this parable, the parable of the rich man. This rich man had a bumper crop. This rich man had, already he had more than enough, but now he had more than he knew what to do with. He didn't have enough storage space for all the crops that came in. And so he said, I know what I'll do, verse 18, I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. See, he's thinking this is going to bring him security and satisfaction. And then I will say to my soul, verse 19, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. He thought he had it all figured out. He was living the good life. He had just retired. His 401k was stocked. He had booked the cruise. He had a condo in Vail. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But God interrupted. God says to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Your soul is required of you. That's what lasts. That's what endures. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? See, this man was foolish because he had made money and stuff the center of his life. And that was ordering his priorities. Not God. So his priorities were skewed. John Ortberg, in, in his uh, comedy on this story, one of his books, John Ortberg said, if you, if you saw this man's list of priorities, like if you snuck into his office and, got to, and you saw his legal pad and you would see his priority list, it would look like this. Priority num number one, harvest a large crop. Priority number two, build a big barn. Number three, achieve financial security. Priority number four, eat, drink, and be merry. Priority number five, remember not to die. <laughs> remember not to die. That's the, that's the punch. 
at the end of this parable. Because in the end, we all face mortality. We're going to face God. And if we believe that, that should really reorder our priorities. And invest in the things that God says are important. This night your soul is required of you, God says to the rich man. And the things you've prepared, all the stuff, all the money, it's going to go to somebody else. You can't take it with you. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 6-7. We brought nothing into this world, but we can take nothing out. You know, that's where that comes from, that saying. We brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out. And the reason that Paul writes that in Timothy is he says, there's some people in the community that's forgotten us. And they've become greedy. And they've wandered from the faith because of it. And the love of money is the root of all all kinds of evil, he says. See, the possessions and the money can choke out the work that God wants to do. Setting our hearts on those things can choke out the word of God. And that's what Jesus taught in the parable of the soil. That, that one of the ways that God's work is choked out in our lives is through what he calls the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness, the fool's goal of riches thinking that if I can just acquire more, then finally I will be satisfied and secure. Jesus is warning against that, and he's saying, instead, be rich towards God. Don't expend your energy acquiring more and more and more, thinking that that's going to secure you. Spend your energy, invest in a relationship with God. It's, again, not that the stuff in and of itself is wrong. God can use wealthy people for great good. But those are the people who said, it's yours. And I'm going to use it for your glory. So the lesson is be rich towards God. That's what really matters, Jesus is teaching. That's what matters in the end. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Develop a relationship with him and maintain a relationship with him at the very basic level. We read the summary of the law each Sunday, and uh, I heard Patrick's in, in your sermon, I listened to it this week, and you referred to the summary of the law. That kind of sums up what God wants us to invest in. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are God's priorities. Those are, those are the things we ought to be investing in. That's part of living a rich life with God. To be rich toward God means, I think, to cultivate an attitude of, of gratefulness for what we do have. That, to me, helps to fight against the, the, the tendency to covet what I don't have. Sometimes I need to uh, make a list of things that I'm grateful for. Sometimes I do this in my prayer time. Before I start petitioning God, I will make a list of the things I'm grateful for, the people I'm grateful for, what God has been doing in my life. I just express gratitude. To fight against the coveting that is so ingrained in our culture today and perpetuated by advertising. Advertising is, is to try to get you things that you never knew existed and to try to persuade you that you really need them now. How did you ever live without this? Or to look at what your neighbor has and think, I've got to have that. That's coveting. And we need to fight against it. I need to fight against it. And gratitude is one of the weapons to fight against the coveting spirit. 
God, I'm thankful for what you have given me, and I want to be content in that. To be rich toward God is to understand that my life does not consist in the abundance of my possessions. My life does not consist in the abundance of accolades. My life does not consist in how I look. My life consists in my relationship with God and other people. God is eternal. People are eternal. That's what I should really invest in. To be rich for God is to recognize ultimately I'm not in control. I'm not the master of my faith. Did you notice in this section of scripture, I was talking to somebody, one of our uh, seminarians here in the congregation this week about what I was going to preach. I was talking to Mike Jorgensen over coffee, and uh, he said, you ever notice that in that parable, it's all I, 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 I. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I've got it all figured out. It's all I. In Greek, it's ego. It's all about the ego. And God is saying, no, you're not in control. Let go of your ego. Let go. You're not ultimately in control. Trust in God. So I think that's part of what it means to be rich for God. Developing that relationship, investing in the things that he says is important. Developing an attitude of, of gratefulness and gratitude for what he's given. And realizing that ultimately, I am not the master of my faith. I live under God, who is the sovereign Lord. You know, last week, my grandmother, uh, Josie's grandmother, passed away, Grandma Michi. And um, she, we had a conversation before she died, about two days before she died. We were at a family party. She didn't know that she was, she was dying. She knew she was in bad health. And uh, we were just talking at a family party, and she said, I just, I can't wait for eternity. And she said, I know you're young, and you probably don't think about it, but she said, I'm, I'm looking forward to being with Christ. And I'm looking forward to being with my husband. And she had this eternal perspective on life. And she had this hope as a Christian that Christ gives us because of the resurrection. The writer of Ecclesiastes, by the way, did not have the certain hope of resurrection. But we look at life and death through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that gives us hope. And that's what she was expressing two days before she actually died. I'm ready to meet the Lord. I'm at peace. I want to see him. I want to see my husband. Well, Grandma Michi was an uh, opera singer. She was a trained opera singer. And she sang in the Chicago Lyric Opera. And she never let you forget that. At one time, she did sing in the Chicago Lyric Opera. When she became a Christian, she gave that up to begin um, ministering in small churches and singing gospel songs. Her signature song was, How Very Rich I Am. And the line goes like this. How very rich I am since Jesus came my way, redeemed my soul, and turned my night to day. How very rich I am. She was the wife of a butcher. She didn't have a lot of material wealth. But she was rich spiritually because Christ had redeemed her. And she was investing in people and in the things of God. So brothers and sisters, can we sing that song, How Very Rich I Am? And not be tricked by the fool's gold of this world. Let's invest in what truly matters.
and be rich towards God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word and the challenge and encouragement it brings. We confess that oftentimes we are taken in by the things that this world says are so important. They are limited goods, and yet we, we look to them for ultimate identity or security. God, have mercy on us and help us to put your steadfast love in, in front of our lives so that we would be drawn to you and not the things that this world thinks says you have to have to be secure. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand and we'll read